Jeff Ebert. Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we look at God's good news for imperfect people. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of John to get an up-close and personal look at the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is Season 1, Episode 23. We're in John Chapter 8, starting with verse 12. Now, everything that happens in today's scripture passage is a continuation of this conflict that we've been seeing. It started back in chapter 7 when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for an important Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths or in Hebrew, Succoth. This celebration was designed to remind the Israelites of the time that their ancestors spent in the wilderness and that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus if you want to read there. For the duration of the feast, uh, the Jews lived in homemade shelters constructed just with tree limbs and branches and stuff. And this reminded them of how their ancient ancestors lived in tents in the wilderness as nomads. Uh, Back in chapter 7, we saw Jesus use the festival tradition to teach about himself because on each day of the feast, a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam was poured over the altar in the temple to remember the days in the wilderness when God had given the Israelites water out of a rock. And with exquisite verbal craftsmanship, Jesus expands the meaning of that symbolism and uses it to point to himself. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of their hearts shall flow rivers of living water. That statement provoked a response of hatred on the one side and devotion on the other. Well, now it's the next day. Jesus has just confronted his enemies again when they tried to trap him into condemning a woman who was caught committing adultery. Go back to the last episode if you want to see how Jesus dealt with that. But today's passage has to be read in the context of what the people had just been celebrating during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I'll explain that after we hear the scripture. John 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Before we get to the scripture, I want to let you know that we're going to be having a special event for people who are supporters of Gospel Wabi Sabi. We're going to call it, call it Wabi Sabi Wednesday, and it's going to be April 20th in the evening. I don't have the exact time yet, but it's going to be a video, online video event for us to have some conversation together about a topic. And I'm still getting input from people on what they might want to talk about. Um, if you want to email me, with your idea, if you're a supporter, uh, what you think would be a good conversational topic for us. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. And you can reach me through the website, just jeffebert.com. And if you'd like to join us for Wabi Sabi Wednesday, you can become a supporter. Uh, Just look in the program episode notes, and it'll direct you to how you can do that. But it's going to be Wabi Sabi Wednesday, April 20th. Hope that you'll join us. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. 
I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied, because if you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple areas near the place where the offerings were put. No one had yet seized him because his time had not yet come. One of the great moments of the pageantry during the Feast of the Tabernacles was called the Illumination of the Temple. It started each afternoon with the lighting of four enormous uh, golden oil-fed lamps in the court of the women. These lamps were huge menorahs. They were 75 feet high. Imagine that. They were so bright they could basically be seen from every corner of Jerusalem. It was like a huge bonfire. And they reminded the people of the pillar of fire that had guided Israel in their wilderness journey, what was called the Shekinah glory cloud, the light that came as the very presence of God led the people of Israel. These colossal lights burned all night long, and the light was so brilliant, the the entire city was lit up. Then throughout the night, the men would be dancing and singing and worshiping God, almost working themselves up into a frenzy. You you may have seen something similar in the way modern Hasidic Jewish men dance. The, The men massed together for these huge line dances and singing, and these men would just work themselves up, and it would last all the way till dawn. It was one of the greatest celebrations of the Jewish people. But now, the day after the festival, these lights are extinguished. And in that context, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In effect, he's saying, you have seen the blaze of the temple candelabra, which will go out at dawn. I'm a light for all times, not just for one night. I can give permanent light. What I offer never goes out. But not only that, your lights celebrate only the history of Israel. I am the light of the world, the whole world, not just Israel. And whoever follows me, Jew or Gentile, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. So right away, you can see how this is going to make people mad. Jesus not only claims to be the sacred light, but also this light is now open to the world outside of Israel. All people are to benefit from Jesus's light, not just their nation. All are illumined. All are invited into the light of Christ. We have to see how huge this claim was by Jesus, how outrageous it sounded for the people who heard him say it. Jesus isn't some little pocket flashlight that you put on your keychain, you pull out whenever you reach a dark point in your life and want a little guidance. He is the brilliance of a thousand suns that can melt away planets and all the rest. You see, Jesus was keying into a major theme that's found throughout the Bible. I don't have time to go through all of it, but light and God are always paired in Scripture. First, where there's light, there's God. The first thing God creates in Genesis 1-3, he says, Let there be light, and there was light. Out of the very essence of God's own self, out of God's own nature comes light. Otherwise, frozen, silent, dead space. Light is absolutely necessary for life to exist. So life and light are always connected. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God's nature is like pure light, unpolluted, brilliant. We could spend a lot of time talking about the contrast of light and darkness, how it's portrayed in literature and film and art. It's the whole of good 
versus evil. God is pure good, pure God, pure light. In fact, God's nature is what defines what is good. So light is God's very being. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Do you get that? God exists outside of what he created. God is not contained by our universe. God exists in his own dimension, and in that dimension, God is pure light. I mean, this is something we we can't even begin to understand. The best approximation we can make is that to be surrounded in God's presence is to be in the presence of, of brilliant, penetrating light. Psalm 104, verse 2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. Not just a piddly little light. If you can combine the light of a million suns, you can't equal the brilliance of Almighty God, the one who created all things. Astronomers, their best guess is that there are about one sextillion stars in our universe. That's a one followed by 21 zeros. It's a number that's too big for any of us to really comprehend. God created all of that. And God's brilliance is more than that. That's the kind of light Jesus is referring to. And this is what makes the statement so amazing. The creator of everything now wrapped in human skin. He is the light for the entire world. He could have said, I am the light of the universe. That was wouldn't have been any more, more outrageous or bold. you know. But that's who Jesus was saying he was. I once made the mistake of taking an astronomy class in college. I thought we'd just, you know, memorize constellations, look at the stars. It was a big mistake. Now, the professor was so great, Dr. Conklin. Turned out he was a fine Christian man who loved the writings of C.S. Lewis. I learned so much from him. He was also a brilliant physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project during World War II. Well, I got a D on the midterm because there was just way too much math for me calculating the life cycle of stars. The best part was going to the campus telescope, the planetarium, and seeing the vastness of space, all the immensity of what God created. And when you see that, you can't help but feel small. Psalm 8, when I consider the works of your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Or how about Eugene's, Eugene Peterson's uh, modern poetic paraphrase of that, that verse? I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings, and then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look at us? Well, here's why. It's the amazing message of gospel wabi-sabi, why this is so important, because God cares enough about us personally that he became human so that we could begin to comprehend a little bit of this majesty. Jesus' birth shows us how much God cares, that God was incarnate in the flesh, the same God who created one sextillion stars, now reduced to a fetus and a child and then to a man and a savior, all for our benefit, because God loves what he creates. And because of that love, God promises something else. Where there's light, there's direction. Jesus gives a promise that we won't walk in darkness. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We don't have to go through life alone. And that's just so reassuring. The God of all creation cares about me personally. This in and of itself separates the Christian faith from all Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, where your life is really 
only a drop of water in the vast ocean. Jesus demonstrated God's intimate care for each one of us as individuals. When he touched a leper or healed a blind man or he showed compassion to a troubled woman, when he calmed the fears of a sick child, he cares for people and he promises to give guidance direction through the maze of life. This is a favorite theme in the psalm, Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. Daily steps guided by God, the God of everything, willing and able to offer guidance and direction to your life. Psalm 18, verse 8. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. Are you going through a dark experience now? Think you can come out of it on your own? Probably not. But God can change your perspective. Like a lot of us, like the like a stained glass window, on the outside it looks dark, but on the inside as the light shines through, that's when the brilliant colors appear. Let God shine through your circumstances and begin to see your world in a whole new way. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. We receive God's direction, God's light, through his written word in Scripture. How important that is. Where do you need God's light? Light to discern your time commitments and your priorities. Light to manage your finances and your material things. Light to guide your relationships, your interactions with people. God's word gives us light on all these things and so much more. And it's not like a Ouija board, but through human wisdom, God revealed to through human authors who faithfully recorded their interactions with God. And in the same way they encountered the Lord of light, we can know the inner voice of the Spirit through prayer and discern God's leading as it is confirmed and in harmony with Scripture, as it is confirmed through the wise counsel of mature believers. God's light will never lead us in opposition to his word. And there's one other thing this passage shows us. Where there's light, there's bugs. You know how in the summer you turn on a light, immediately you attract insects. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, a swarm of critics appear, fluttering like moths around a light bulb. Here's an important life lesson. All good will be attacked. All good will be attacked. John told us back in chapter 1 that Jesus came as, John, as God's light into this dark world, and the darkness is in opposition to the light, but the dark cannot overcome it. Look also at John 3.19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, and everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You know, Jesus always had critics, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, court officials, ordinary people. There were constant quarrels with Jesus. Far from leading some idyllic life, Jesus was constantly engaged in verbal conflict. People attacked him, not just for his actions, but because of the claims he made about himself. Like this one, I am the light of the world. This is the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. Previously, we looked at the first one, I am the bread of life. There are five more to go in John. And those seven altogether, oh seven, I am statements, 
they paint a powerful picture of who Jesus claimed to be. And as always here, his enemies scoffed at him, thought he was dangerous. And they were right. He was a danger to their self-made, ego-driven religion and their apathy towards the true God. Eventually, his enemies can't take it anymore. We know what happened. Jesus eventually is arrested and executed. And we know that's not the end of the story. But Jesus isn't just some dead martyr whose death is supposed to inspire us towards, you know, being nicer people. He's our living and reigning Lord. But before his arrest, Jesus warned his followers, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And those are really sobering words from Jesus. Those are, again, some of his hard words because they're, because they're true words. It was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus for several hundred years after Jesus walked this earth. Mass persecution. Some were just local, but some were actually state-sponsored by the Roman emperors. Christians were beaten, strung up by mobs. There was both random violence and organized persecution under emperors like Nero and, and others. Christians were killed in the arena by animals and gladiators. Uh, remember the story of Nero used to dip Christians in oil and tar and light them as torches to light up his garden parties. He did it just for sport. But the worst wave of persecution actually came under the emperor Diocletian, starting around the year 303 AD. He was the, his, his persecutions were the most per pervasive and brutal throughout the Roman Empire. But the light had come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. So there's been persecution down through the centuries, and sadly, sometimes various Christian groups did it to each other. So persecution is a real thing. It's still around today. More Christians have been killed for their faith in the last hundred years than in any other period of time. Places now where churches are being burned, where they're being shuttered, where Christians are arrested or killed, where churches are being bombed, in India, Malaysia, China, many Muslim countries. Churches are being destroyed in Ukraine right now. It's routine in some parts of the world, places where it's illegal to talk about the Christian faith, illegal to share your faith, or to try and lead a person to faith in Christ, where it's illegal to share a Bible, or to try to make converts, or to even be a convert on your own. There are repressive regime, regimes and family honor killings. When I was in Jordan back in 2018, our pastor host told us of a young Muslim woman who gave her life to Christ, and then she told her family, told her family she was a Christian. And this brought the family shame in their community. The father told the sons to do something about it. So the three brothers grabbed the sister. Two of them held her down, and the third drove over her with the car, killed her. And there were no consequences, except that their honor in the village was restored. It makes any talk about our persecutions seem pretty trivial, doesn't it? Maybe you got snubbed, a little ridicule, passed over for a promotion, maybe some social pressure or something uncomfortable. No one I know has shed a single drop of blood for Christ, and I hope we don't ever have to. So Jesus and his opponents go back and forth a bit, arguing about his credentials. And by what right does he make his outrageous claims? You can read those reasons for yourself. Mainly, he was speaking about his unity with the Father. And he puts it very bluntly. If you knew me, you would know the Father. And that did it. That just pushed them over the edge. They were ready to arrest him then and there, but they didn't. His time had not yet come. 
Again, the invisible hand of God intervenes and restrains them. And Jesus says in verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we follow Jesus, we won't be tripping in the dark. That's his promise. What's interesting is the Greek used here evokes several images from ancient times. It was used to describe a number of different things. First, it was used to describe a soldier who's following his captain and his leader. So you can think of this following in the light as loyal obedience. The second is of a servant who accompanies his or her master, who seeks what the master wants, wanting to serve and wanting to please the master. Third, it's used as the one who follows a counselor's advice. What good is it to go to a counselor and not listen? You listen carefully, and then you put into practice the good that you have heard. And the fourth kind of following is obedience to laws. You just flat out obey. It's written right there in black and white. Many things are written down, plain as day. You don't need to really debate anything. Places where you don't have to wonder, well, what's God's will for my life? It's clearly stated. Should I lie to this person or not? Well, that's an easy one. Just obey what's written down and you already know. Follow out of allegiance. Follow out of a sense of servanthood. Follow because you're listening to good counsel to obey or follow to obey. The arguments with Jesus continue in the rest of the chapter, and we'll look at the rest of that next time. The key thing today is just to remember to walk in the light. If you want Jesus' light, you have to follow him. You have to listen. You have to obey. Will you follow the light this week? I talked a few episodes ago about our family gathering at the Moose Mountain Lodge in New Hampshire. One year, my nephew Peter got a really cool radio-controlled airplane called an air hog. He got it all charged up. We took it outside. There was a nice, smooth, snow-covered slope down the mountain, 100 yards or so, and we thought that would be a safe place to test it out. Uh, One of the uncles let it go while Peter had manned the the remote control. I mean, the, the plane was flying great, only one problem. It wouldn't respond to the radio signals. Even though they had tested it and checked it, in real flight, it wouldn't respond to the controller. So it flew beautifully right up into the sky, banked to the right, and then went right into the tallest birch tree around. Got stuck like 100 feet up. No possible way to get it down. It's probably still there. It was a great flight, just in the wrong direction. You know, people are like that. Great flight until the crash. And God is offering himself to you. Jesus, the light of the world, he's offering direction, counsel, guidance. The question is, will we follow the light we're given? Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have everlasting light. So what do we face in this week? I know there are people who are going through some tough things. There are some tough things coming up. What does it mean that Jesus is the light for you this week? As we follow Jesus, we're going to find that Jesus will impact those three areas of life that I mentioned before. The places where we need light. How do I spend my time, my priorities? What will I do with my money, my material things? And what's going on in my relationships with other people? Sometimes we look for the huge blazing beacon of light that will make everything clear once and for all. I'm not sure that's how God has been using his light in my life. I think it's sometimes better to try for God's light, like in short spurts. You know, we live in these 24-hour segments, so let's not look for a huge beacon to guide us all the way down to the end of life. Let's just get guidance for the next 24 hours. Begin the next day personally and privately with this prayer. 
Lord, this is your day. I need light enough to take it one step at a time. Just one step at a time. As the day goes on, as you encounter one or more of those three categories, your priorities, your money, relationships, as you seem to hit that blank wall where you need some light, right when you're on the phone, right when you're at that meeting with that person, right when you're facing that temptation, right when, right when you're making that decision, right at that time, shoot up that simple prayer. Just say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. I don't know where to go from here. And listen, let his light come into you. Trust him to bring his light into your heart and into your situation. And then maybe in the evening, look back on the day with a spirit of thanksgiving. Try to identify how God's light came to you. In that 24-hour segment, when did you receive some light? How did it come? Through scripture, through another person, through the inner leading of the spirit, through circumstances? Did something just fall into place or uh, something like that? Identify as light and give thanks for whatever illumination comes. Just give thanks. Look that back upon that day with a spirit of gratitude. Another option would be to keep a little journal, a little log of what you learned. How I learned to listen and to hear the voice of God. I heard God say, and then just write that down. Writing it down kind of cements it into your life, helps to encourage you in the future, because in a future time when you're struggling, it's great to look back over how God's light came into your life in the past. So every day that's the challenge, to follow Jesus with all your heart, to take God at his word, that he is the light of life and the light of your world in the circumstances of each and every day. Have a great week.